The following program brought to you by Comprehensive Financial Consultants and CFCI, which is solely responsible for its content. Securities are offered through J.W. Cole Financial, member FINRA and SIPC. Investment advice offered through CFCI and J.W. Cole Advisors. J.W. Cole Financial, J.W. Cole Advisors, and CFCI are unaffiliated entities. The opinions expressed by the members of CFCI and their guests should not be construed as specific investment, legal, or tax advice. All economic and performance information is historical and not indicative of future results. Investing may involve the risk of loss of principal, and any tax advice on the show is not intended to be used by any persons for the purpose of avoiding U.S. federal or state tax. Penalties that may be imposed on such persons and each listener should seek advice from their tax advisor or legal counsel on topics that arise from the show. The representatives of CFCI and their guests are not providing legal or tax advice, and nothing should be construed as a solicitation to offer or buy securities. Now enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to the big show, Your Money with David Hayes. Thank you so much for being part of the program today. It was on Thursday, the sun popped out for a little while. Our office on South College Avenue, where the windows face a certain direction, it can be nearly zero outside. If the sun's shining, it's hot in the office. So this morning I came in, I put the uh, heat on briefly to warm it up, and then as the day progressed, we flipped the air conditioner on. So it was a quite a day. Down at the office uh, as the sun popped out. But boy, it's glad, glad to see it, right? We haven't had sun around here for quite some time. Hey, I'm going to have a kind of a, a neat show today. Rod Holloway will be joining me briefly for kind of a little market update. Of course, the Fed met this week. They came out of their meeting, said pretty well what we thought they would say. The market reacted in somewhat of a negative way, but that was to be expected. So we're going to talk about that. We also have some information later on on investing during an election year. What are some of the uh, guidance that we can give you there? I know everyone gets a little edgy when we have a presidential election year, especially in, during the primary season as it starts to shape up, and it is shaping up right now. And well, so we're going to give you some tips and tactics that we thought you might want to know to get you through this election year. Also, Secure Act 2.0, that was enacted back in 2022, December of 2022. Kind of changed a bunch of things in the retirement planning world. If you remember, some things came into play in 23, some in 24, 5, 6, 7, and even 2033. Well, here we are now in 2024, so we're going to talk about what things are now enacted in 2024 that you need to know about and remind you of things that came into play last year in 2023 as well. And then lastly, if you remember from two weeks ago or three weeks ago, when Julian Albertini was on, the global portfolio manager at First Eagle, we talked a lot about debt, right, and deficits. And one of the things that he brought up when I said, how will this end, right? When does the rooster come to roost? And most of the time, historically, it's not ended well having this much sovereign debt. So we talked about how it has been dealt with in the in the past and he brought up something called repression or repression and i'm like i don't even know what you're talking about but i let it go and i thought well now i need to dig into this so doug and i both kind of dug into what that terminology is and it's a way that many developed countries around the world including the u.s at one point in our life not in my life but one time one point in the life of the united states have used repression or repression i'm not sure exactly how to, how how you say it uh, to get it somewhat out of this debt problem we're in. <clears throat> so I'm going to focus on that in the last segment, I think, or maybe, this, I don't know, one of these segments to talk about that. So let's talk about last week briefly before we get a hot rod on the phone. All right, so stocks last week continued their climb as excitement around big tech continued. We uh, had some layoffs at big tech, and that means bottom line goes up. We're going to talk to hot rod about that. We had some positive economic reports that stoked 
the belief the Federal Reserve has pulled off this quote soft landing. I've been, I've, you know, I've, you guys have been listening to me for a while, right? <clears throat> what, have, what have we been saying? The Fed's not going to lower rates. We have strong employment. Interest rates are starting to come down. We, it was not transitory, although I think in history they're going to look back and say, well, it was only around for, you know, three or four years, so it was technically transitory. Well, yeah, well, look at your life on a, on a, on a timeline of the entire length of, uh, you know, of this, of this world, and you're just a dot. So I guess you're transitory, too. Me, I guess we all are. We just, we just it's, it's temporary. We're here, all here temporary. Well, inflation's here temporary, too, evidently. Big Tech was back last week. That pushed the Dow in the S&P to, uh, to early highs in the week as the markets kind of resumed that late fourth quarter rally that we so much enjoy. That so-called Magnificent 7, they comprised 28% of the S&P 500 index. They kind of assumed or resumed their pole position at the head of the pack as we all kind of maintained the artificial intelligence bullish mindset and that was rewarded by the cost cutting of many of the big tech companies you know you look at any company the most the biggest expense is employees so if, if you cut employees boom right to your bottom line the rally did fizzle out on friday the week's gains were slow but they were steady big economic news last week was better than expected economic growth and inflation news both gdp grew at 3.3 percent in the fourth quarter, and that was ahead of Wall Street expectations of two, we had personal consumption expenditure index, one of the Fed's most favored inflation gauges. It showed core inflation uh, cooled in December with an annualized rate of 2.9%. That's pretty good, beating, again, consensus expectations. Core inflation, which does include food and energy, I believe. I always forget which one does and which one doesn't. Core inflation was 3.2% on an annualized basis, its lowest since March of 2021. So we are edging towards that goal, which I think it could be somewhat fictitious to get down into the twos, but we'll see. Inflation update didn't move the markets much. It helped validate optimism that the Fed policy would maintain economic growth while bringing down inflation. I saw the 10-year Treasury was at 415 last week. Talked to Glass a little bit about that on Wednesday, how that relates to mortgage rates and you know, he asked about where do we think mortgage rates need to be for people to kind of get going again. I'm like, it needs to be to a point where they just get used to it. But I think somewhere in the upper fives maybe could be a good settling point. Right now we're in the sixes. Usually it's around two points over the 10-year, which would put you at 615, although it is a little bit higher than that, I believe, just because of what they call risk premiums. So we have earnings season. That really fed into what we would call FOMO investing, the fear of missing out. That drove a lot of activity and seemed to build market momentum last week as well. But the enthusiasm for AI, artificial intelligence, that just continues to be one driver of technology that no one's going to to ignore. We're going to get Rod's opinion on that. We've been here before, right? We've been through dot-com era where everything with a dot-com at the end of it was hot. You know, we've been th- we've just been through a lot of other times in history where we've seen certain things get super hot. Um, but I, I think, you know, this AI that's I'm embracing, some I actually am attempting to have it help me write radio show outlines. It's not, it's not, either I'm not inputting what I really wanted to say, or it's not got that much radio outline material to draw from to, uh, to give me a really great outline. But it does give you an outline. If you ask for one on the Secure Act 2.0, 43 minutes of talk, six segments, it'll, it'll crank something out, but it doesn't really give you anything but just kind of some... I don't know, 
some talking points, I guess, which is pretty much all I ever use anyway. But it's my talking points, not some computer's talking points. So we had over 23,000 workers at 85 tech companies lost their jobs this month. That market, that market appears to be rewarding the cost-cutting measures. When I was a kid, I had a hard time saying, cut your cost at Kroger. And I, <laughs> I found myself now at 54 still having an issue with saying cost-cutting measures. That with many of the big tech giants, they kind of reposition themselves with this AI in mind. And some analysts inferring that the emphasis on efficiency is going to continue to encourage people. Well, we had UPS also laid off 12,000 employees across the globe to kind of align its resources for 2024. So that's what the Fed wanted, right? We wanted to have jobs kind of be lost and, you know, kind of slow things down. And I think they're doing a darn good job. So let's get Rod's opinion of what's happening right now across the uh, the markets and more. We'll be right back. It's your money with David Hayes. Welcome back, everyone. Give yourself and your family the peace of mind that comes with proper estate planning. Call my buddy Lance at the Like Law Group, 812-323-8300. Kenny Bland Auctions, they are your full-service auction service. They offer the pre-planning, the sale of your estate or real estate. Been really busy over there at KennyBlandAuctions.com. Check them out. They have new auctions going off all of the time. Rod Holloway now joins me on the phone. Of course, you hear him on Glass in the Afternoon on Mondays and Big Show Friday. Rod, before you uh, came on, I gave him a little heads up of what happened last week and we wanted to talk about this week. But I, I, I found this kind of funny as I put this together. I talked about Earnings season it kind of feeds the FOMO right now. The fear of missing out kind of drove some things uh, and some market momentum. And that enthusiasm for AI continues to be one of the big drivers of technology. Magnificent Seven, as we've been talking a lot about recently. Uh, we've had 23,000 layoffs over 85 different tech companies lost their job this month. The market is rewarding those cost-cutting measures. UPS just knocked it down uh, 12,000 employees across the across the globe and you know there's, there's a couple of different ways to increase your top line and some of it sometimes it comes to cost cutting and the market right now sure seems to to like it because there's no other catalyst i don't see at this moment to drive mark the market much much higher yeah no it's going to be difficult it, it, it's not you know i've heard some analysts talk about uh, an earnings multiple expansion and and to me that just doesn't make sense because normally the earnings multiple expansions happen when interest rates are really, really low. So we had that for a long time until we got into the aggressive rate-increasing environment with the Fed to fight off inflation. So really what you have to have here to potentially have some nice appreciation from where we're at is is earnings and revenue growth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you can grow into those numbers. So it's kind of like, you, you know, at near the end of the year, the forward-looking price-to-earnings multiple was setting at around 22. Well, then as they come in and they start adjusting and, and resetting those, those earnings for 2024, near the end of 2023, as they've gotten some, some feedback out of that third-quarter earnings and other companies' projections, well, next thing you know, now that that forward-looking earnings multiple had ticked down to just a tad under 20, 19 and, and, and change or so right around well, that wasn't because the, the, the stock market dropped. That was because earnings estimates had ratcheted up a little bit. Uh, so, so, yeah, so, so 
we are at a high valuation in which you're not going to be a buyer in the market because of the price being so compellingly good, but you are going to be willing to be a buyer in this market because the future should be getting better. Not every aspect, which is which is okay, as I said. That way, hopefully, we can eventually get to the point to where the Fed can say, you know what, we no longer need to be restrictive and start taking those those cuts or increases back via cuts to get to neutral. They also are not going to hopefully feel as though they need to be stimulative. And then at that point in time, the economy just does what it does. And guess what? Certain sectors of the economy will perform better than others. Uh, so it's not that everything's going to be pumping on all cylinders at all times. It's just kind of where's the area and where are things happening right here and now. Um, part of that will probably be with some of the laggers. You know, every time we start to think that the value side is going to play catch-up, it begins making that move in that direction. But before it really plays catch-up, it kind of slows down, pauses, and then all of a sudden growth takes off and starts screaming to the upside again. Now, remember, catch-up doesn't mean that all of a sudden value is going to have the same type of performance as growth. There's a reason for those two different labels, and you should expect to be able to have more appreciation on growth stocks than you do value. Um, but it doesn't mean that in short periods of time that value may play catch up and have some flight out performance. Yeah, and we you know, we could look at things and say that doesn't make any sense, that doesn't make any sense, but the market will say the opposite of that. And and you never know really what's driving it. We mentioned the AI. I mean, productivity, cost cutting. There's so many variables that go into how a company can look good, and their fundamentals still look pretty strong. But you, you look at some of these companies, like you said, and you're like, man, I, I don't know why we're paying that much for future earnings. It seems crazy. And and then you look at some companies, you're like, man, that's a great company, and no one's even paying attention to that one. So I, I think, I mean, that's the way it normally goes, right? Growth spin on fire we had in 2022 obviously the the value side was better growth got beat up mainly because tech got beat up now we're in, or, or 20 yeah 23 um was was powered by by tech primarily and now we're into 2024 so those those things typically cycle around and you know that's why you just have to buy a, a, a both you know i was looking at some different mutual funds from the same fund family um, that probably sit, you know, within, within a rock straw of each other. One was up like 40% last year. The other one was up like, like eight. And you look at what they own, they own a lot of the same stuff, but one, f- one fund had really overweighted into, to technology. The other one looked to be more evenly weighted. And, uh, that's the same fund, oh, by the way, that was down 33% the year before <laughs> the one that was up 40 <laughs> Uh, I mean, I can tell you, folks, like if you're down 50 percent, you need 100 percent just to get back to even. So I'm like, well, that fund finally got back to even. But I I think fundamentally, Rod, over the long term, having a balance of both the growth and value and just aligning yourself with good managers that that can handle that for you. And and I say for people, get out of the weeds, let the people that are in the in the jungle, in the weeds that do it every day, handle it for you. That's really the best way to go. Yeah, most certainly. And I think the the younger you are, the more you tilt towards that growth side. And as you start getting closer to retirement, you start adding more to the value side. As you get into retirement, you may want to be uh, a lot more in the value area because value typically is also dividend payers. You know, it doesn't automatically have to be. But predominantly, most of your companies that get labeled as a value company are also paying a dividend on that. So, yeah, that kind of goes along with the cycle of, the you know, accumulation and, and preparing for retirement and then entering retirement and the income phase within that. 
and, and those are the types of adjustments that should go all the way. But, yeah, we talk about it all the time. You know, one of our favorite equity portfolios we have here that we offer our clients is the combination of our core growth and our core equity income. You know, we don't have to attempt to time the market as to whether growth is better than value, because what tends to happen is that in the years that growth outperforms, value slightly underperforms, and then in the years that growth underperforms, value tends to outperform. So the long-term track record of combining both of them typically still gives you pretty solid performance in comparison to the S&P 500 without trying to have to navigate in time when is growth in favor versus when value is in favor. You made a comment to me. We were making some changes for a particular client who uh, wanted to be more growth-oriented, kind of changed his uh, his his projections on when he was going to retire. And, you know, you we were talking about how the Magnificent Seven or the big boys were kind of driving the return, and you, you made a comment. If, if, well, if we're going to want to try to, you know, beat or – or you know, at least hang in there with the S and P when they're driving it. Let's not buy the five hundred. Let's buy the S and P one hundred. I, I was tell tell people not we're recommending that people do this necessarily, but just to know that there are other ways to play the S and P without just buying the entire index. Yeah, most certainly there there, there is an index out there that is called the S and P one hundred, and it's just the top one hundred companies within the S and P five hundred. So if if you know, no, it's not as small as Magnificent Seven. But, but the Magnificent Seven are in there, or at least all of them that are in the S&P 500 are going to be in that 100 because they're so large in, in market capitalization, and that's the determination. Um, so, yeah, that, that is a great way to do it. There are also some other ETFs out there that may take the S&P 500 and then maybe overlay some sort of a computer screen that they feel gives you the best forward-looking performance out of a, a basket of the S&P 500, but not the whole thing. So those are some things like that that you could look for in the ETF world to where they run that quarterly screen and, and maybe they end up owning 75% of the index. But what they're trying to do is is eliminate some of those underperforming stocks in there. So, yes, there most certainly are different ways to navigate and get exposure to fewer stocks rather than a broad index that, that – Still has done very well, obviously, but it's being driven by maybe some of the big boys in there. There are some strategies and ideas out there that can help you get a slightly more concentrated position. Last thing before I let you go. Well, two things. One, I, I, it's kind of funny. I, you know, all these companies are saying to people, including UPS, that I mentioned, is cutting about twelve thousand jobs, which really, honestly, isn't that is not that many jobs to UPS. It's not even really on the radar as far as. That goes, but here's what what it was in the article I read. Starting March fourth, they're making office staff work from the office five days a week, and they're making like a big deal out of that. And but here's the thing: I I mean, working from home isn't working for the most part. I mean, some maybe, but for most, not. Uh, I know people who work from home. They watch March Madness. They walk their dog. They're they're you know doing laundry. They're doing other things when they're at home that all of us do. Uh, some can do it. Most can't. And companies are finally recognizing that. I thought that was kind of an interesting comment. But I want to ask about oil prices. You know, we saw kind of a surge with no real crisis, no real hurricanes, no nothing. Um, but I'm later, Rod, in the program going to talk about investing during an election year. And there's a piece that I, I read on which sectors have done best in election years. And energy is the most interesting of, the, of all of them. And because before, right before the election, Prices typically are pretty low. They have actually, I mean, it's, it's, it's go back from like 1992 to 2022. 
energy prices dropped anywhere, I mean, as much as 40% in, in an election year, and then have gone up about 60% after the election. But I'm not going to get into all that right now. But oil prices did see a nice little surge. Yeah, they, they have. And, and, and part of what's going on, and Glass and I talked about this, and it's surprising that the, the little blips that they've had as far as the surges have been rather short-lived, especially given the turmoil we see in the Middle East. You know, with what's going on in the Red Sea and, and, and the shipping, the, the continued attacks by different terrorist organizations such as the Houthis and them that are backed by Iran as far as missiles, stuff like that out there. You know, the, the, the drone attack that killed three Marines, unfortunately, in Jordan. And, and the fear that that belies to potentially the war between Israel and, and Hamas expanding and, and other countries getting sucked into it. And, and, and that's where I've been a little bit surprised that, yeah, we've had a few tick-ups in, in the price of oil off of that. But given the fact that I think the tension is getting much higher over there than, than what it was, say, three weeks ago or two months ago, it's been surprising that we've only had these slight upticks and we kind of give some of that back right away. Now, we'll see. I've seen reports um, through a service I have coming through, and it's a live chat, and a guy had said through the trade news, who, who he must have a subscription to and we don't, that supposedly there is an agreed-upon ceasefire between Israel and Hamas right now. Now, I've not seen that in national news or don't know if there's any truth to it or, or how definitive this agreement actually is, but... You know, that would obviously be a positive thing. That would potentially alleviate some pressure, at least upwardly, on oil. But I don't know that oil is going to sell off considerably, because I don't think oil has had a huge move up based on that activity in the Middle East. All right, Rod, well, we're going to let you go. I'm going to talk about something that's pretty interesting next, I think. A few weeks ago, you know, we had Julian Albertini, the portfolio global manager for First Eagle Global, and we were talking about debt and deficits and how we get out of this. He brought up the term reparation as how some major uh, I'm sorry, countries, including the U.S. at times, have gotten kind of inflated their way out of debt. So I'm going to let you go because I want to spend a good amount of time on that. So I'll see you back at the ranch. You bet, Dave. It's a great topic because we most certainly have a spending problem with our government in this nation, and it's something that needs to be resolved. Not that you have the solutions that they're going to listen to, but it most certainly is something that we need to start talking about and putting a focus on and begin holding our political appointees feet to the fire to solve that issue. Dave, have a great show, and I will talk to you later. All right, we're going to let him go. We'll be back, guys, in just a minute. It's your Money with David Hayes. Welcome back, everyone. Did you listen to the show a few weeks ago when Doug Hughes and I were on and we had Julian Albertini on? He's a Frenchman. He is a portfolio manager for First Eagle Global. And, you know, they're all about stock, gold, and cash. That's kind of their thing, absolute return. Very well-versed in the history of finance. Uh, Very smart guy, very kind guy. We're going to visit him in New York, I believe, in a few months, Doug and I are going to have dinner with he and his wife and maybe take our wives with us. So that'll be a fun time. Always interesting to sit around interesting people. Doug said what's cool about Julian, though, uh, is that you're wanting to pull information and knowledge from him. But at the same time, he's trying to do that with you as well. So the conversation, he, he says he's a much better like asker and listener than he is of giving you info. So, But he was on the show. And if you recall, 
I talked about, you know, Julian, we have a saying in America, it's like, when is the rooster going to come to roost? I mean, historical examples, uh, we talked about the reserve currency, uh, how historically dealt has debt has been dealt with when you have um, an amount of debt that is un- insurmountable. Uh, like in France, raising ages for retirement, reducing benefits, if it can happen there, it can happen here. They mean, but then he mentioned something called financial repression or repression. And I'm like, what is that? Well, I'm, I'm listening to him talk about it, but I'm thinking, okay, well, we didn't get into that very deep. But I'm, I'm interested in that. Understanding when it's been used in the past, how it's been used, and why I maybe personally think, and I'm not that smart when it comes to these kind of things. It's not my area of expertise, but why my common sense makes me think it won't work this way again. But it might. Now, here's, here's what I found. Financial repression is a term that describes measures by which governments channel funds from the private sector to themselves in the form of debt reduction. The overall policy actions result in the government being able to borrow at extremely low interest rates and obtaining low cost funding for government expenditures. Now, of course, this action also results in savers earning a lot less. Then the rate of inflation Then we have, I'm sorry, you're earning less than the rate of inflation, and therefore it is repressive, and that's where the term comes from. So financial repression, it's an economic term I had not really heard before that refers to governments indirectly borrowing from industry to pay off public debt. The measures are repressive because, again, they they disadvantage the savers, and they kind of enrich the government. Some methods of financial repression may include artificial price ceilings, trade limitations, barrier to entry, and market control. So, financial repression. It's kind of an indirect way for governments to have private money pay down public debts. The government kind of steals some growth out of the economy with sub, with, sub, you know, with tools like zero interest rates, inflation, inflationary policy to knock down its debts. Some of the methods can actually be direct, such as out lawing the ownership of gold. Remember that that was a thing and limiting how much currency can be converted to foreign currency as well. Now, let me talk to you about the inflation idea. Everyone here knows the rule 72, right? You take 72, divide into your divide your return into it and it gives you how many years it takes to double your money or whatever. So, you take, you know, like um so I, the number of years. So like 10 into 72, you know, 7.2% to double your money. There's kind of the reverse rule of 72, right? Which if I have inflation of, let's say, let's say four, and I, that means in 18 years, everything that I have will be worth half. So if I have debt of, of call it 30 trillion, and I have 4% inflation, but I don't borrow any more money, which is not going to happen, then my debt would feel like 15 trillion in 18 years. So this is part of the repression that we're talking about. So there was an article written in 2011 by an economist for the Bureau of Economic Research entitled The Liquidation of Government Debt, that governments could return to financial repression to deal with the debts following the 2008 financial crisis, right? And that's kind of what happened, right? We took interest rates to zero, uh, we were worried about deflation at the time. We finally got a little bit of inflation, but not much. But financial repression can also include such measures as direct lending to the government, caps on interest rates, regulation of capital movements between countries, reserve requirements, a tighter association between government and banks. I was actually learning a little more about how 
and what happens with the debt that isn't bought up. So when the government had a hard time selling 30-year paper, I think around 23%, this was a, an auction not long ago, um, didn't get subscribed to. So you have big banks, big national banks. Here, J.P. Morgan, here's Chase, here's yours. Wells Fargo, here's yours. I mean, Bank of America, here's yours. And they basically divvy it out, like, here, take it. You have to take it. That's, that's the association between government and banks. So government control over domestic banks and financial institutions, creation of, of a, kind of a captive market for buying government debt. That's what we had where our government was buying our own debt. And there's a little thing there, too, where you could potentially issue enough debt, the government buys it and retires it, but guess what happens? That's a bunch of money that gets dumped in the system, and then that's when the inflation takes off. So my thought has been, you know, if the Fed starts to do some things, like you see not as much public debt being offered, or you see rate cuts before they should be cut, we might be in something called, you know, financial repression. I don't know. That same paper found that financial repression was a key element in explaining periods of time where advanced economies were able to reduce their public debt at a pretty quick pace. These periods tend to follow uh, an explosion of public debt. In some cases, this was a result of wars and, and their costs, right? And I'll go back to where, where it happened with us. More recently, public debts have grown as a result of stimulus programs, of course, with the um, with the COVID relief stuff, and then also even coming out of the Great Recession where we you know, put a lot of money into the economy. Uh, stress tests and have, have basically been changed to force insurers, force banks to buy more government debt because they're saying you need to buy more safe assets. Of course, what is that? Government bonds. So buying bonds helps in turn keep interest rates low and potentially encourage overall inflation. All of this cum cumulates into a quicker reduction in public debt that would have been otherwise possible. So it happened. So right now we're 120% debt to GDP. No one seems to be terribly freaked out about it. Of course, we've changed the narrative. It's not really about that. It's about cash flow. How much, how much income do we have to support that particular debt? Uh, like any big company or any big municipality, you rarely pay debt off. You always refinance it. And that's what we do, right? We refinance the issues. We're borrowing so much more. And you keep, if you borrow more and more and more, that's an issue. The other issue is I go back to when we did it in America right after the war, World War II, and Julian talked about this, where we were at 120% debt to GDP. And we were able to get it down to about 60% debt to GDP through repression, through doing exactly this thing. And you know, we've been on and off the gold standard. Gold was made illegal to own. They may, limited the amount of currency swaps you could do. I mean, it was all there in the history. So we could be there. The issue for me is Social Security and Medicaid and the additional borrowing wasn't really a thing, all right? We, Social Security and Medicare, yeah, it was around, but it wasn't mature. We had 40 people playing into Social Security for every one person taken out. Now we have like two. So those programs increase with inflation. So I don't think this would work again. Uh, what we have to do, as Rod pointed out, we have to figure out a way to either cut benefits, because remember, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, those three things, plus the interest on our debt, absorb the majority of, of our revenues. I mean, it's like 80-some percent or something. I don't even remember now. I forget. It's maybe a little bit more than that. So if, if those things aren't going away, our discretionary spending, with things we can actually you know, deal with, um, there's not enough of it to, to, to deal with it. So we have to raise taxes. We have to cut expenses. 
Uh, we have to cut benefits or a combination of all three. So that's kind of where we, I am on things. And I think about Social Security, raise the wage, increase the wage base, right? Maybe you put some caps on spending. You're going to have to raise taxes. In what form? I don't know. Income taxes, that's what I focus on. But what if you had a VAT tax or a national sales tax or you know, you got rid of stepped up cost basis on securities at death, whatever it might be, they've got to come up with the money somehow. Maybe they change the required minimum distribution rules to not use the uniform table, which assumes you have a spouse 10 years younger, to the single life table, which assumes that you're not going to live, you know, 27 years after you start taking your required minimum distributions. You're going to live 16. Well, that doubles practically your required distribution. They don't have to even raise taxes to get more tax revenue. You've already heard me talk about why age 75 on RMDs. That was kind of a, uh, to me, a, a great mathematical scheme to get a lot of money out of tax deferred retirement accounts. So I'm just saying, keep your eye on this. And if we move back towards a very low, low interest rate environment and inflation runs kind of hot, we might very well be in a period of, of attempted repression. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, what's next? Was that, was that a fun topic to talk about? I don't think so. Secure Act 2.0 enacted in December of 2022. Changed a bunch of things in retirement. And here we are in 2024. So I'm going to tell you what's going on in 24, what happened in 23, just all the things you need to know about. It's Your Money with David Hayes. Welcome back, everyone. Sure, money with David Hayes. Hope you have a great weekend coming up ahead of you. Indiana, of course, beat Iowa. Uh, who did we beat? Yes. And now we have a chance to think to beat Northwestern, maybe? No, no, no. I forget. Penn State. Someone's coming to town. Anyway, I'm, I hate to say I've lost a little interest, but I have. But I'm going to stick stick it out like I always do. All right. So the Secure Act 2.0 effective dates that was enacted back in December of 2022 kind of changed a lot of things for retirement. And then they had to clarify a bunch of stuff. And that's been happening quite frequently. But back in 2023, they raised the required minimum distribution age to 73 for everyone under the uh, birth year of 60. Um, they also allowed for your qualified charitable distributions, which you can make from your IRA at age 70 and a half directly to a charity without paying tax. And when you get to 73, it satisfies whatever portion of your required distribution that it, that you took out. Um, but you have a one-time option to move 50 grand to a charitable gift annuity, which could benefit, you know, pretty much you. All right. We also have Roth for simple and SEP retirement plans. The simple is what we've had at our office. We're moving to a 401k. And Roth employer match are allowed. That happened in 2023, but no one was ready for that one. So that wasn't even, even thought of as a thing. So in 2024, IRA catch-up contributions are going to be indexed for inflation, which is nice because then you don't get stuck. You get to increase it naturally rather than every once in a while they increase it. Also, those qualified charitable distributions that you can make from your IRA tax-free, um, 100000 is what you can give for, from uh, your IRAs, and that's now going to increase with inflation as well. Sounds like a lot. It is a lot, but sometimes you may want to you know, endow something or you want to give one large gift for some capital campaign that you're part of or whatever. The other thing, matching plan contributions can be made on student loan payments. So if you have a lot of student loans, you can elect to have the matching of your 401k or 403b go towards your student loan payments. This is the big one, right? 
529 plans to Roth IRA rollovers. That starts this year. So here's the way we understand it. 15 years has to be around the account. The beneficiary is who's going to be able to roll this in. They have to be eligible for Roth, so they have to have earned income and under certain income limit and income requirements. They can roll the annual amount over, but they can do a total of thirty-five thousand over their lifetime. Now, here's a technique that I came up with. So let's say you have ten grand left, and you're like, "Well, I want thirty-five. Well, guess what? For the next, you know, three years, four years, put that seventy-five hundred dollars in your Roth in your five-two-nine plan. Get your twenty percent tax credit. Roll it to a Roth." Just put it in, pull it out, roll it to a Roth. Make sure, make sure that you get full advantage of this $35,000 limit. So that's a great outlet for people, especially like me with one kid. I don't have another kid to roll it down to. And then here's the other one. Plan, this was big, but now they've delayed it. Plan catch-ups. So catch-up in your Roth, in your uh, 401k must go to the Roth with income greater than 145 indexed. Now, that has been delayed until 2026, so don't worry about that one for now. All right, let's take another quick break. When we come back, I think it's investing in an election year if I have time to get to all this. We'll be right back at Your Money with David Hayes. Hey, if you are listening and you're like, hey, I didn't catch any of that, please just email us at cfc. Here, I think it's cfc at cfci.us. That's the direct email. Or you can go to our website, cfci.us, contact us, say, hey, I'd like to get those dates that David talked about. I'd like to get the article on, on financial repression. I would whatever, whatever we're talking about, I'm happy to share it with any of you out there. So just email us, and I will get it to you ASAP. All right, so it is an election year, right? And I found a pretty good piece on what investing in an election year looks like, kind of a guide to investing in an election year. So I thought I had a few interesting tidbits I thought I would share. Let's first talk about how to invest with confidence. This was uh, some questions, top questions, over that came from a bunch of financial advisors on election year stuff, drawing insight from analysts over 90 years of investment data across 23 different election cycles. So what did they learn? I'll give you the high points and not dig in the weeds. U.S. stocks have tended to trend up regardless of whether Republican or Democrat won the White House. Primary seasons tend to be the most volatile, but then markets tend to bounce back strongly afterwards. Investors often get pretty nervous and move into cash during election years. I saw that happen during the uh, Trump election in 2020, people got freaked out. If, you know, if he wins, then the market's going to crash. And if you recall, the market did drop quite a bit right out of the gate when it was announced that he'd won. And then it, it went on a massive rally. Um, but staying on the sideline, that has rarely paid off. The S&P index has had negative returns in only two of the last 20 election years. And that was in 2000 and 2008. And of course, both of those declines were largely accounted for by asset price bubbles rather than politics. When you look at uh, which party has been better for investors, again, it really doesn't matter. When you peel back the onion, um, you can go back all the way to uh, Franklin Roosevelt years. And you say, what if you put a grand in when he was elected uh, the first time, <laughs> before many other times, you have about 19 million bucks today, but no one that I know was alive back then and had a thousand dollars. 
What's the other things? Uh, let's see. Primaries, yep, they are typically a little more volatile the first five months of the election year. So expect that if we see volatility. Like, yeah, I heard that the first five months is typically more volatile, but then market tends to bounce back and return to an upward upward move after primaries in. And then let's see. Which sectors? This was interesting. What sectors have done best in election year? And they, they analyze Cons, uh, consu uh, consumer discretionary staples, communication, energy, financials, healthcare, all that. It's interesting because so market winners and losers are really hard to predict, but the healthcare sector has been in the crosshair of number election cycles. We have rhetoric over drug prices that put pressure on stocks in the pharmaceutical and managed care industries. Other sectors have had similar bouts of weakness. Um, does that mean you should avoid that sector altogether? Nah. You know, when everyone's worried about a new government policy that's going to come along and destroy a sector, it's interesting how those uh, tend to always dodge and weave and get through it. They're usually over overblown. So regardless of who wins, stocks with strong long-term fundamentals often rally once the campaign spotlight fades. The pre-election market turbulence can create buying opportunities for folks with a contrarian point of view. I know a lot of you are contrarians out there and the strength of uh, and, and kind of embrace short-term volatility. But here's the one I wanted to point out before I have to take my break. If you look at all of these different sectors, energy was the most widely swung. And it looks like in the year before an election, energy prices tended to trend down. And, you know, I mean, put your little, you know, little conspiracy theorist hat on or something and say, you know, most of the time people vote with their wallets and if the economy's good, the person in office gets elected. It didn't happen last time. The economy is doing great, and we changed we changed from a Republican to a Democrat. And right now, the economy is doing pretty good, right? So who knows? But I, some people are like, ah, they're playing games with us. They're lowering start, they're lowering gas prices to make us all feel better, and then vote a different way because the next year, the year after a presidential cycle, uh, election, they boom up, they skyrocket the prices due of oil, energy, and that's going back from 1992 to 2022. So I don't know, maybe it's just coincidence, but I thought it was kind of interesting at least to point out. But like Rod said, we've had a little spike in in uh, energy costs recently, but it's been sort of up and down, up and down. So I don't know. We'll see how it all shakes out, but we still have several months to figure it all out. All right, I'm going to take a break, come back, and wrap it all up. It's Your Money with David Hayes. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you missed any of it, you can catch it on, of course, any of your podcast outlets after the airing on Thursday night and Saturday morning. If you're driving around at 9 a.m. in the morning, pop it on WGCL and you can catch it then as well. So I want to say thank you once again. This uh, this show, I wasn't uh, thinking I was going to do any heavy lifting. I don't think I did that much. We've got some really good guests. Jim and I are lining up, including Jolene Dixon from the Social Security Administration here locally and has been a friend of mine for many, many years. One of the smartest, most knowledgeable people when it comes to Social Security and all the nuances that it that brings. Uh, she'll be here live in the studio. I can't remember the dates of that, but it's coming up soon. I'll keep you abreast, or, uh, abreast of everything happening. And I promise to continue to bring some good content your way. I'm going to put out a new podcast, 2025, The Final Drive, very, very soon. So if you're a little listener of that as well, I apologize for a little hiccup in that uh, schedule. But we're going to get back on it. So have a great weekend, everyone. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. The preceding program was brought to you by Comprehensive Financial Consultants and CFCI, which is solely responsible for its content. Securities are offered through J.W. Cole Financial, member FINRA and SIPC. Investment advice offered through CFCI and J.W. Cole Advisors. J.W. Cole Financial, J.W. Cole Advisors, and CFCI are unaffiliated entities.